What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Steve Pearson. You know, I would argue that you know pressures in the business world are um, you know just as demanding or more, uh, and you know you, you don't want to be in in close, cramped quarters, whether physically or you know in in, in other senses with with uh, um, you know a, a team that uh, is dysfunctional. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Steve, thanks for making time. My pleasure, Jess. Thanks for having me. So uh, we're, we're definitely going to be talking about Frendemic, the, the company you're the CEO of, and, and what it was like to go to Harvard and work in McKinsey and um, your time in private equity. But uh, to start off the show, let's talk about your, your other passion, um, mountaineering. How did you get into mountaineering? Uh, so I grew up in Southern California in a family that loved backpacking. Uh, we'd go to the High Sierras every summer. Uh, lots of fun memories as a young child, uh, hiking through pieces of the John Muir Trail and camping around you know, small lakes way up in the mountains. And then in high school, started getting into uh, technical rock climbing a little bit. And then went to Brigham Young University in, in Provo, Utah, just right at the, the foot of the Wasatch and you know a real mecca for climbers with a lot of fun things and in uh, the Wasatch Mountains, as well as in, you know, the national parks in Southern Utah, really started doing a lot more rock climbing and, and technical canyoneering and, and some of the most beautiful places in the world. And, uh, you know, for folks listening to the show that have done climbing, um, one thing leads to another. And, uh, you know, pretty soon just found myself doing bigger and bigger mountains, uh, and, and you meet people that share that passion. And so, you know, found myself on, you know, you doing snow and ice climbs and, you know, out on Mount Shasta and then, you know, Mount Rainier a couple of times. And then, you know, you're on a trip down to Mexico and you're doing the Mexican volcanoes and, uh, you know, pretty soon you're in Alaska and, um, ended up, uh, climbing with, uh, another gentleman who, uh, had a goal to, to do the seven summits. And, uh, we did Denali together in Alaska and over a couple of years kept talking about, uh, you know, when, when are we ready? And, and would you ever want to go do the big one? And, and, uh, um, uh, he, he didn't have to persuade me too hard. It, um, it, it's, it's, uh, there's definitely, a, an allure there. And I just love being in the mountains and in beautiful places. And, uh, the, the, the Himalaya are, are, are definitely no exception to that. And so in, in, uh, 2013, we, we, uh, 
made the plunge and, and went out to Mount Everest and uh, spent uh, you know nearly two months out there and had a, a fantastic expedition. Uh, really, it was a, a, a tremendous experience, and, and uh, we were very fortunate and lucky with with timing and in many ways. But uh, we, we um, did make the summit, and it, it, it was tremendous. It was uh, uh, really a blessing to to have been able to to do that. Well, um, you know, it's, it's certainly an accomplishment that um, you can't fake, right? Like there's either you did it or you didn't, you know. Um, and uh, it, it's intriguing for so many people, you know, the movies and the documentaries and things about it. Um, I was interested, though, when we were talking before the show here, um, that your, your comment that you feel like that experience prepared you for being a CEO and this entrepreneurship style stuff almost as much as, as all your other experience. Um, tell, tell me more about why you feel that way. Yeah, I think the mountains are a, a microcosm of, of life in many ways. And, and, and really, you know, lots of physically challenging endeavors have their correlates elsewhere in life. Um, you know, certainly, there's a part of preparation and, and training and, and doing hard things and, and being willing to put in the work. But uh, I think uh, with, with entrepreneurship, the lesson I take away from, from big mountain uh, expeditions is is really patience more than anything. Um, you know, Mount Everest uh, as a climb is is not very far geographically. You know, the the trek from you know where where you you typically fly in a small village called Lukla, and, and then the trek up to base camp is maybe twenty five miles. And as the crow flies from you know base camp to the summit of Mount Everest is you know probably not even two miles. I mean, it's just it's right there, but it takes you you know several weeks yeah you have to acclimatize you go up and down and up and down you know ferrying gear and 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 uh preparing your body for that and and uh you know i think uh, you know business often feels that way i mean you know a, a client signs on a client quits uh you know you've got a prospect of this big deal and then it all falls apart and um you know keeping in mind that those those setbacks as you come down the mountain aren't really setbacks they're they're preparation for the next piece and you know the mindset that you, know, you you can't just charge to the top. Uh, you know that the altitude would would very quickly kill you. you. You have to build upon a foundation and and progress in in an orderly, planned fashion, and and not getting frustrated when when things don't go the way you think they will, because they never will. You know, big mountains. Uh, you know, the weather plays a huge part of of any expedition, and and you just have no control over that. And uh, you know, while there's lots of things you can do running a business that that help or don't help. Yeah, there's also a lot of things that aren't in your control and you have to plan for that and work around that and, and try to mitigate those effects. But, but you can't get frustrated or give up when, when you can't control it because, you know, that's going to be every day. Yeah. You know, um, we, as we were talking earlier and I was telling you about my love for the mountains, I grew up um, spending a lot of time in the Canadian Rockies, both, you know, hiking up the Canadian side of Glacier National Park it, called Waterton in the summers and then in the winters, especially these later years, um, snowmobiling up, doing the kind of snowmobile up, snowboard down thing, Golden, B.C. and Fernie, B.C. and these kind of places. And uh, was uh, kind of twisting my rubber arm to get me to come down here to the armpit deep powder of Utah without the negative 30, right? Um, <laughs> but um, let, let's talk about this business stuff for just a minute. So um, you, you started a company with a bunch of other full-time students. Tell us about Seedability. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, in my sophomore year of my, uh, college experience, uh, a couple of friends of mine from Chinese classes, um, had this idea that you know, there were these really cool chairs in, in Asia 
that uh, you know the back and, and seat were essentially made from uh, bungee cords, so they were very breathable and, and um, comfortable. And there was just nothing like it in the U.S. at the time. And so we we tracked down the factory that made these. And, of course, the factory owner was thrilled with the idea of, of selling into North America. And so before long, uh, you know, a bunch of 21-year-olds had a contract to uh, be the exclusive distributor for all of North America for, you know, this, this product line. And um, off to the races we went, uh, really uh, not knowing what we were doing at all, but with a lot of energy and, and ambition and, and excitement to go figure it out. You know, we, we get comments from listeners sometimes about, you know, they like listening to the show and they definitely want to hear from somebody who's worked at McKinsey and went to Harvard and is a CEO, but they also like hearing the like, you know, that you weren't born a CEO, you know, that you, you had to learn these lessons. So I'm interested. I mean, didn't over a three-year period, didn't you guys do like a million dollars of revenue while being full-time students? Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, you know, the business grew uh, quite well. Um, you know, we didn't have any sort of sales team. It was just, you know, the founders for the most part initially. Um, but there, there's a lot of interest in the product and, and we hustled and, and worked hard. But, you know, I have a lot of memories of, uh, you know, wrapping up the school day and then heading down to our small little office. We rented a space above a tuxedo shop um, not far from campus and, you know, working on the business from, you know, 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. And, and, and repeating, uh, you know, I'd be sitting in the back of lecture halls uh, on my laptop, uh, you know, processing customer orders and, and trying to run the business. Um, so, uh, yeah, tell us about some of the, uh, you know, tell us about some of the, the hurdles, the learning curve of, of, you know, running your first company at 21. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. People will take you seriously if you take yourself seriously. Uh, you know, sometimes we'd, we'd get back to the office after, you know, going to a trade show and, you know, here we were talking to the CEO of Steelcase at our trade show exhibition. And, and, you know, as far as he knows, we're just another company with a product. And, and, uh, you know, we'd get back and say, you know, do you think he has any idea that, you know, the oldest person in our company is, is 22 and, you know, this is the first time we've ever done this. And, you know, probably not. And, and, and that was fine. But, but people were generally very, um, you know, friendly and, and wanted to see us succeed and were excited about what we were offering and, and were impressed with, you know, how we'd work. Um, there were a number of uh, challenges, though, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, we, we bootstrapped the whole thing. You know, we didn't take any funding. And so that, uh, you know, uh, was, was uh, a, a bit of a headache. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that more because, uh, you know, what, what ultimately uh, led to the, the downfall of that business, one, was a great recession, but two, was, was cash flow planning. Um, but, uh, you know, being a student w- was a bit of a hurdle. You know, I have fun memories of, um, you know, take missing phone calls and, you know, cause I was in class and, you know, calling back <laughs> customers and saying, Oh yeah, you know, uh, we, we were in a meeting or, or, you know, sitting in the back of the class so I could jump out and take important phone calls and, you know, oh, sorry to be slow picking that up. You know, I was, you know, in, in, uh, you know, meeting with our, our head of sales who, you know, also happened to be in that same class. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, th- that had uh, some fun challenges. We, we did submit the business to a number of, of student business plan competitions where it, um, you know, performed, performed well, you know, won a couple of awards, and, and that was exciting uh, too. But, uh, you know, the Great Recession, when, when that came around, uh, you know, really didn't help. Uh, you know, consumer durables all got pushed out on, on the purchasing cycles. But uh, I think as, as young students without business experience, one thing we, we really 
didn't appreciate was uh, that cash is king and, and cash flow uh, is everything. Uh, you know, it sounds so obvious when you say it now, but to, to put it in perspective, you know, we had great margins on our chairs. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd buy them, you know, factory cost for, you know, $45 and, and sell them in the U.S. for, you know, 180 200 And, you know, as, as, as you know, sophomores, we're, we thought, you know, this is fantastic. We're going to be rich. Everything's wonderful. But when, when you really start to dissect that, you know, it's only economical to, to bring those chairs uh, across the world in, you know, container-sized quantities. And so, you know, we had to front a huge chunk of cash to, in order to order a, a, a container quantity and then pay for it. And, uh, you know, then the factory had to build them and package them and ship them to the port in, in Taiwan and then send them across the ocean and then have them sit in the port in Long Beach and then go through customs and then sit in, you know, our, our third-party logistics warehouse and then sell. And, you know, of course, we're selling them in, you know, onesies, twosies. And, and, and so, um, you know, from the time we had to pay for a chair before it actually sold, you know, it could easily be six months. And so predicting, you know, which models were going to do well, which colors were going to do well, um, what was really difficult with so little business history and, you know, every day those chairs sit unsold in that warehouse, you're, you're paying for that space. You know, every day it's sitting in customs, you're, you're paying for it. And, and so, um, you know, when, when the recession hit and, you know, customer purchasing just started getting stretched out um, and, and where we had no outside, outside funding, you know, the, the company just couldn't sustain itself. But, uh, you know, when, when, you're, when you're 20 and you say, you know, wow, look at these huge profit margins, this is amazing, you, you just don't appreciate uh, uh, you had the, those elements. You know, it's interesting that you refer to them as elements. I'm thinking about the, the mountain analogy here, right? And I think about like whether it was dumb scout camps where we, uh, we ended up having a bear coming into camp at six in the morning, right? And rooting through our stuff because <laughs> it hadn't been separated out enough. Or, you know, you go on some hike and you realize you didn't bring enough water. And it's like these things that like are really painful on that 20 miles that you <laughs> that you don't end up doing again. Um, so uh, when you think about like how you run Friendemic now, for people who don't know what Friendemic is, can you give us a quick, a quick, uh, give us the elevator pitch on why, why Friendemic exists? Yeah, absolutely. So Friendemic is a social media marketing company. We provide software and services primarily to medium-sized businesses uh, to help you market effectively on the channels where consumers are today. Um, we find that uh, many of our clients have a hard time really getting great results on social marketing in-house. Uh, you know, their marketing team is often stretched very thin, and, and social um, can often be an afterthought among many other responsibilities. And uh, you know, we've we've worked with hundreds and hundreds of clients, and so we've really developed uh, a lot of expertise there. And our software tool is built for what medium companies need. Uh, so many of the the social media marketing tools out there were really built for the enterprise or for, you know, the mom and pop shop. And uh, we really think the middle market's been neglected and, and Frenemic's there to, to fill that hole. Sure. So, you know, these companies kind of, you know, these hundreds of companies across the country that are using your product, it's kind of that, didn't you tell me it's kind of like from 20, 20 staff to 500 staff is kind of the sweet spot. That's kind of your average client. Yeah, that, that's about right. Um, and we're going to talk more about this later in the episode, but um, when you when you think about lessons from seedability that are showing up now all these years later as you're running Friendemic? Are there any that stand out to you? 
Oh, so many. Um, you know, every business is different, but, uh, you know, every business is the same in a lot of ways too. Um, yeah, you know, I'm sure you've, you've, uh, had many people say this on, on other episodes, but you know, people is just huge. Uh, you know, seedability had, had a lot of challenges as, as a, a small startup and, you know, a very traditional industry run by a bunch of people who, who frankly didn't know what they were doing. Um, and yet, you know, we, we, reach some modicum of success and had a fantastic experience doing it because we just, we worked well together. We trusted each other. We all worked really hard. And I mean, that just makes everything, uh, you know, whether it's Friendemic or any company, you know, I, I don't know that there's anything I'd say more about, um, you know, your own quality of life as a person, but also the success of your business of, you know, finding people that you, you want to work together with and you can trust. Uh, I mean, that would probably be the, the biggest one. You know what's so interesting about that? I think about a bunch of my entrepreneurial failures. And so often, like multiple of these, it's like, man, that deal is so good. Like, I don't know that I necessarily want to go on vacation with that guy. But man, this deal is awesome. Right. And, you know, back to this uh, mountaineering example, like, it's going to be a long road together, like picking people that you actually want to spend time with. And then the trust thing is absolutely huge. Right. But you know, <laughs> there's going to, they're going to be like your family, right? Oh yeah. Well, you know, the, the mountaineering analogy, uh, runs through everything as I, as I commented and you know, people there is so huge, you know, a lot of the folks that, you know, go to Mount Everest or, or any of these big mountains who, who don't make it. Um, a lot of the reason is, is their team. Uh, you know, there have been several famous expeditions in the past that failed because of, uh, you know, team dynamics that, that fell apart. Uh, you know, a lot of people think, uh, you know, the, the American expeditions to K2 in the 1950s should have succeeded and we would have been the first, uh, you know, na- nation to, to reach the summit. But, uh, you know, the, the team dynamics uh, fell apart. Um, but, you know, you, you're literally roped to your teammates and uh, you're, you're dependent on each other for your lives. But even, even beyond that, um, that's when you're climbing, but all the rest of the time, you you're, you're, you're in a tiny little tent, you know, clipped to an ice screw on some mountain face while a storm blows in, uh, you know, uh, my two climbing partners and I on Denali were in our tent, uh, while a storm passed through at 17,000 feet for four days. And wow. this is a small little tent with the three of you just, you know, packed in there with all your stuff with nothing to do for four days. And <laughs> what did you, know, you do? Did you tell a lot of stories? Told a lot of stories, uh, you know, played a lot of cards, uh, looked out the tent, hoping the storm had passed a lot of times, um, as, you know, tried to sleep and, and keep your energy. Cause you know, at 17,000 feet, uh, you, um, you, you feel it, but you know, you, you don't want to be in those conditions with, uh, you know, people that you don't, like and, and trust and, and get along with. And, you know, I would argue that, you know, pressures in the business world are, um, you know, just as demanding or more. Uh, and, you know, you, you don't want to be in, in close cramped quarters, whether physically or, you know, in, in, in other senses with, with, uh, um, you know, a, a team that, uh, is dysfunctional. Yeah. You know, I think about now as we're, you know, in the, we're in the middle of starting a couple of new things and, and I, you know, I'm sure you have this with your private equity background, but because of the fund I ran and stuff, I I have a lot of especially younger guys come and ask me for advice about certain things. And 
I'm such a fan of like date first before you get married. You know, like, have you ever, like, you want to start a fund with these guys? Have you ever even done a transaction together? You know, like, is there any way to like do something together first? Like, you know, the, I'm sure the Excel spreadsheet is great, but what about like your own chemistry as a team? Like, is there anything you guys can do first before, like, before you actually divide up the shares of the one company? Can you do a joint venture and see what it's like to try to try each other out first? I uh, um, totally agree. Listen, I'm really interested in another thing, you know, with your, A, you know, working at, um, at Vector, the private equity firm in, in Silicon Valley after um, McKinsey and, and studying that, those kind of classes at Harvard. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts about bootstrapping. You know, you, you mentioned you'd done that at Seedability. And while there's certain pressures, it sure seems like uh, in some ways it lets some pressure off while you try to figure out what you're doing. For, for startups. What, what's your thought about people bootstrapping instead of raising money day one? Uh, that, that's a big question. And uh, I'm sure many people smarter than I have have, have said great things on it. Um, I, I think I'm going to cop out a little bit and say it depends so much on your business and on you as a person. Sure. Uh, you know, I've definitely seen a lot of businesses that, uh, you know, really are not necessarily venture capital type businesses who took funding anyway, because it, it, it can be tempting. You know, I, I think that's a big mistake. You know, if you don't have, uh, you know, a real need to take venture capital money, well, not necessarily venture capital, angels, anything, um, you, you don't, you know, it, it adds so much pressure to the business, you, you lose so much control. But you know, unless there's a compelling reason that you need to be first to market, or your product just can't be built uh, for less money than than you have. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't take venture money just to you know grow faster if there's no real compelling reason that you have to grow faster. Um, you know, on the other hand, I've definitely seen a number of businesses that um, you know could have succeeded uh, had they had financial backing that failed because they didn't. Uh, you know, Seedability certainly would not have been a venture backed company. But, you know, had we had the right financing in place to be able to, uh, you know, effectively manage the cash flow cycle we, we faced of, you know, a big upfront purchase followed by, you know, a, a long return as, as, you know, high profit products sold, you know, over, you know, many, many months, uh, you know, that business might still be around today. Um, you know, given uh, the things I, I've been able to do since then, I, I suppose I'm perhaps glad it's not, though, uh, you know, even... Um, you know, that failure opened other doors and enabled me to go other directions as well. Um, sure. But, you know, finding the right financing model is, is uh, an important decision in the early stage of a business that I think is, is very often neglected. You know, people get so busy writing their business plan uh, and, and thinking about their product and, and customers. And of course, those are very important. But, you know, I don't see a lot of, of, of plans that have really given a lot of thought to um, you know, what should the business model be, or sorry, what should the financing model be for this type of business? I, I think far too often I see, you know, the default out there is, you know, go raise as much money as you can, as fast as you can at the best valuation you can. And of course, that's the right decision. You know, I, I think there should be more discussion out there of, you know, this business is not a venture capital business, and that's fine. And, you know, as a community of entrepreneurs, we should be just as excited and, and celebrate those just as much. But, you know, they, they don't make headlines, right? And so, you know, the, the venture-backed businesses definitely, you know, get people excited. They throw down bigger numbers and, and, and kind of share uh, a, 
get more than their share of, of the limelight, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you said. You know, for us, we're looking at a couple of things we're look, working on right now. We want to do some um, just, you know, plain vanilla, Warren Buffett type compound interest investing in, real, in some stable real estate income type of projects, which the millions of dollars there's needed, you know, we can't all self-fund, right? So it's inherently something that needs investors where like some of the leadership training stuff we're doing with some special operations veterans from the, from the highest, you know, the, the higher end special mission units. That's something where we're desperately trying to do it ourselves without outside funding because we want that flexibility. And, you know, maybe at, at some point if we have highly reliable income streams that we feel like we can double down on, we'll do it at that point. Um, but I think, uh, that really what you said, that like idea of taking as much as you can, as quick as you can, almost like a status thing is something that ends up really hurting people sometimes when some of those promises from raising that money were based on hopes and projections rather than history, right? Yeah. And, and, and they often force you to uh, a business model that uh, you maybe didn't want or, or didn't, uh, didn't plan for, because now you've got investors who are, are going to push you to grow at uh, a tremendous pace uh, and and push you to a risk profile that that maybe you you hadn't wanted, you know, as a venture capitalist, you know, you're investing in dozens and dozens of companies, you know, looking for you know that handful of big winners, and that makes sense for you as the venture capitalist because your your aggregate risk is is you know spread out, but as an entrepreneur, you may not want that risk profile. I mean, you might have an idea that has a very high probability of modest success on its own. And you're sacrificing that when you take VC money to have a very small probability of huge success, but a much bigger probability of failure. And you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get pushed into that, that path by venture capitalists, but you don't have 40 other portfolio companies as an entrepreneur. And that risk profile may not make sense for you. Yeah, it's it's hard questions that, you know, the maybe the business media that's glamorizing the how much somebody raised aren't necessarily leading people to ask those hard questions, right? Absolutely agree. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30 minute episodes, so we're going to break the interviews in half. Please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview. And as always, come to iCollective.co for show notes and to learn more about child rescue, go to the menu and, and look at our child rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans. 30% of Americans who are planning home improvements of $5,000 or more will pay for those renovations with a high-interest credit card. That may not be a great idea. A better idea may be to take cash out of your home with a Quicken Loans 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 4.375%, APR 4.65%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate subject to change. Pay 2.13% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 30. 